every runner has some sort of a backstory. I'm going to be your host, Amanda Loudon. We're going to talk to different guests in the coming weeks and months uh, that you're going to find interesting, entertaining, uh, and you'll probably even learn a little bit from it. Welcome back to Running Story, the podcast series where we talk to elites, um, beginners, and everything in between. We like to think that every runner has a story, and we want to share those with you. I'm your host, Amanda Loudon, and this week I've got uh, one of my favorite runners on the show. Her name is Joanna Zyder. She is a former Olympian. She went to the 2000 Sydney Games in triathlon. She's been to the Olympic marathon trials several times over as a runner and also has been to the trials as a swimmer. So as you can tell, she is quite a talent. She's also one of the humblest elites you're ever going to meet. Always happy to share her knowledge with those of us at the amateur ranks. And as of late, Joanna's been having some physical struggles of her own that she is going to be sharing with us, and uh, I think you'll find that that Joanna handles things with uh, a grace that many of us would probably find hard to pull out ourselves. So without further ado, welcome Joanna Zeiger to the show, and let's get started. So let's just kind of... um start at the beginning, if you don't mind, um, going back with how you got started um, in endurance sports, and we're going to focus a lot on the running aspect of it, um, but I know your first foray into anything athletic-wise was swimming, correct? My first sport was swimming. I started swimming at the age of seven, so I'm all the way through college. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And you were quite an accomplished swimmer. Um, talk about you know, where, where you went with swimming, um, you know, in college and, and, you know, trials and all that kind of thing. Well, uh, when I first started off swimming, um, I, it took a long time before I actually found my momentum. I, I really wasn't very good. My stroke was terrible. I, I didn't have passion for it. It was just something I kind of did. And it took getting the right coach in the right circumstance for me to really find my motivation and love for it. And once I started improving, it just made me hungry to improve more. And I was a 400 IM or 200 breaststroker. Those were my two best events. In 1988, I qualified for the Olympic trials in those two events. And that was my first taste of really competing at such a high level. And it just was so motivating to watch people qualify for the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And that was, you were, you were in college at the time or after college? Well, it was the summer before my freshman year. Okay. All right. Very cool. And then during college is when you got your first um, taste of running. Is that correct? Well, the very first run I ever went on was actually at the Olympic trials in 1988. Uh, one of my teammates ran cross country in addition to running, uh, in addition to the swimming. And she had this crazy idea that we should run to the pool from our hotel. <laughs> now, she's a runner. I was not. I had never run a step in my life. And 
I don't know why I thought that would be a good idea, but I decided to do that with her, with my Reebok aerobic shoes and, uh, you know, my big cotton shirt. I don't even know what kind of shorts I was wearing. I did not have a sports bra. It was 100 degrees, and I did not know where we were going. Um, by the time we got to the pool, and she, you know, left me in the dust, and I somehow muddled myself to the pool. I started to pass out from dehydration and exhaustion. And how far and- the run was it? I have, I mean, eight to 10 miles. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I was, I was crippled for days. I couldn't walk. I mean, you know that, you know that post marathon thing where you can't walk downstairs and <laughs> yes. you can't sit down. I had that from that run. <laughs> and, and how did that impact your, your swimming during the meet? Well, I was done with my events. So okay. Oh, okay. Okay. All right, I would good. have done something so stupid if okay. I had any more events. To <laughs> All right. Good. Good. But so, did that whet your appetite? Did you say, okay, wow, that you know, I can, I can potentially do this, or how did it evolve from there? I absolutely detested running after that. It made me hurt so much, and I was so dehydrated and dizzy. I remember walking into the swim center, sitting on a chair, and I just put my head down. I'm like, what just happened to me? <laughs> and ironically, my coach from college happened to be there, and he walked up to me, looked at me, he's like, what is wrong with you? And I just told him what I did. He just shook his head and knew that he was going to have his hands full for four years. And uh, we did, periodically, every once in a blue moon, we would do some preseason running uh, and I just hated it. I mean, I just, I never found love for it at those times. You know, maybe I ran four or five times during my collegiate years and it just, it, it never, it, it's amazing to me now how much I love running when I hated it so much at that time. Right, right. That is excellent. Um, so then take me from that point to when you actually started running regularly and how that fit into your life and why it fit into your life. When I finished swimming after my last meet in college, uh, I took a break from swimming. I was just, I was just sick of it. I was happy to be done with swimming, but I had all this like pent up athletic energy that I needed to use and running just seemed like a natural thing to do because, you know, it's pretty simplistic. You just put on your shoes and you go run. You don't need lots of equipment. So I was living in Providence at the time and it just, I don't know, it just seemed like the natural next step. And I, I, went into it with a different mindset. I wanted to embrace it. It wasn't something I had to do. I started exploring the area and, and I really started to love it. Excellent. Excellent. And, and then when, um, did it occur to you that maybe you wanted to try racing and how did you first dip your toes in racing? How'd that go? Well, I started off by doing a triathlon, not a running race. And, um, I guess I had been out of swimming for maybe eight or 10 months and I really started to miss it. So I started swimming masters and some of the people on the masters team were triathletes. I kind of caught the bug from them. It was just infectious. They talked about it. I'd seen the Hawaii Ironman on TV. So it was always on the back of my mind. Anyway, I borrowed a bike from my coach's sister-in-law and I started riding a little bit. And at the spur of the moment, I decided to do, do a triathlon, and I was hooked immediately. Yeah. I mean, they really are so much fun. I always say to people that, you know, I, I think triathlon racing is more fun than running racing, but I enjoy the run training more than I ever did the triathlon training, I guess. And, and since it's such a time-consuming thing, you know, 
for me, that's, that's how I kind of gravitated more toward running, I think. But, um, so I'm assuming you started out with a sprint distance for your first triathlon. I did start out with sprint distance. Okay. Okay. And what about what year was this that you did that? I think that was in 93 or 95. It must have been 1993. Okay. Okay. So then when did you end up in Baltimore? So I spent a year in Providence after I graduated from college. Then I moved to Chicago for almost two years. Uh, I got my master's degree there. I actually did my first running race while I lived in Chicago. I'd done a couple of triathlons um, before I moved to Chicago. And then I decided, maybe I moved to Chicago in 94. Gosh, it all kind of runs together. But uh, when I moved to Chicago, you'll kind of get a kick out of the story. Uh, The longest run I've ever done up until that point was like maybe nine miles. And not including that first foray in 1988, that don't really count. So I get to Chicago, and it's uh, September, early September, and I went for a run on the lakefront path. I caught up to this guy, and we're running together, and he said to me, hey, are you training for the Chicago Marathon? And I said, oh, there's a marathon here? Like, you know, that's how naive I wasn't know anything. And I think we ended up running about 10 miles that day, and I was super sore. But... I was, I was kind of thinking in the back of my mind, it might be fun to run a marathon. So a couple of days later, I ran 10 miles and I decided, you know, I'm going to sign up for this marathon, which is now about four or five weeks away. Right. So I built up to a long run of 13 miles and went and did the Chicago marathon. Oh my goodness. And with your talent, give me a time on that one. I ran 332. <laughs> yeah, that, that's crazy. <laughs> um, and, and you loved it? You loved every bit of it? Or did you hate, I mean, you know, I mean, they can be a very miserable experience if you're not trained for them. Well, I was definitely not trained, and the day was not really uh, pleasant. It was, you know, in Chicago, the weather is just so different from year to year. There are years when it's been 80 degrees, and they've had to cancel the race in the middle of it. Yeah. That particular year, I woke up in the morning, looked out the window, and it was snowing. Oh, my gosh. Um, so... It didn't actually snow during the race, but it was very like wet, very damp. My feet were soaking wet the whole time. I ended up with a blister that encompassed the entire arch of my foot. Huh. Um, they were handing out power bars that were frozen. Oh my gosh. It, it was a very interesting experience, but I actually made it through to about mile 22 before the wheels really came off. And, and the, the fact that I had just no training under my belt really kind of hit me, but it was great. I, I, you know, it didn't turn me off from marathoning. In, in fact, it made me just kind of want to do more of them. Yeah, yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, a little bit of youth and a little bit of talent, <laughs> and and uh, you can have a good outcome. Um, so then, from there, um, lead me to the next step. You, because you know, I know you came to Baltimore soon after that, and and kind of lead me into your. Um, more focused, I think you're, I mean, I'm assuming your next step was more focusing in the triathlon world, correct? Yes. So I moved to Baltimore in 1995 and I was still more leaning toward the triathlon. I was dappling in some running, I mean, I think actually the only running races I, I ever did for a long time were I would do a marathon here and there, but mostly I was focused on triathlon. Okay. And um, how long before you started kind of focusing on some of the longer triathlons, you know, half, half, half Ironman and, and then your first Ironman? Walk me through that. 
Well, as you can tell from the stories I've told you, I don't do anything with any kind of progression. Right. Actually did my first half Ironman, my second season of doing triathlon. Okay. I did the, the Muncie Endurathon. So this is while I was still living in Chicago. I'd heard about this race and decided to go out and just try my hand at it. Uh, I didn't really have that much biking under my belt, but I thought it'd be a fun thing to do. Uh, I qualified for the Hawaii Ironman at that race, but I, I did not know much about the sport of triathlon, but I knew I was not ready to go double the distance I had just done. Okay. okay. So I passed on my spot. Wow. Uh, and then when I moved to Baltimore, I kind of had in the back of my head that I really did want to do the Hawaii Ironman. Uh, unfortunately, the first year I was there, I got sick with mono and missed an entire season and ended up going to Hawaii my first time in 96. Okay. And were you training yet with Troy at that point? Or, um, and, and we're talking about Troy Jacobson, who was your coach for a while there. So when I first moved to Baltimore, I kind of was getting in with a mishmash of different groups. Mm -hmm. I did not start training with Troy. Well, Troy didn't start officially coaching me until 1998 when I decided to turn pro. Okay. But prior to that, I was attending his... Um, some of his swim workouts, and I can't remember if he had his track workouts by then or not. He must have. Yeah, probably. Um, so, you know, I was I was involved with some of the group training that he had, but he wasn't officially my coach until 98. Okay. All right. Now, um, I, I know that um, you, one of the things that um, really made you stand out from some of the other pro triathletes um, was that you managed to very well race both Olympic distance and Ironman distance. Um, so, I mean, how did you manage that? How were you, how were you able to be skilled at, at two really different animals? I'm not really sure, actually. It, it really maybe because I just had this incredible amount of endurance for my years as a swimmer. And, you know, you look at the first marathon I ever did with absolutely really no training and able to pull that out. I just had this, clearly had this innate ability for endurance. And, you know, perhaps it's just from all those years of swimming and the short course speed, I really think helps you with endurance, you know, do, and you see all these studies that are coming out today about this high intensity training how it really improves your VO2 max and your lactate threshold. So I think that the, the kind of fitness that I gained from racing in the, in the training for the short course events had a really good carryover to my natural ability for endurance. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of truth in, in that kind of a thing with um, just it, what I see out there today is people become so marathon focused and they just skip anything shorter and I think that um, you know, there's a lot of benefit in, in some of the shorter stuff. I really do. But it, it's it's huge. I mean, the first thing that you lose as you get older is your VO2 max. And if you don't train it, it's gonna it's just gonna diminish every single year. But if you can work on it, you can maintain it for a lot longer. And if you can keep your VO2 max or lactate threshold and some of these other levels higher, it's it's only gonna improve your ability to run long distances. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to talk um, and just kind of tell the audience, I mean, I, I'm probably going to mention this in the intro, but, you know, I know with, with Hawaii, I mean, which is the pinnacle of Ironman racing, um, you finished in the top 10 at least once, right? And a couple more times. I mean, tell me about your, let's talk about your accomplishments with Ironman 
And then I'm going to talk, we'll go, you know, talk about Olympic distance and the Olympics. So um, talk about Ironman first. So I had really good success in Hawaii for a lot of years. And then I had really bad luck there. But I was top 10 for the first time in Hawaii in 1997 as an amateur. I actually placed ninth. Wow. And then I turned pro the following year, and I was sixth twice and then fifth once. So I had four top 10s four years in a row. That's amazing. It really is. And all the while, you were racing at the top level of Olympic distance also. And so then let's talk about you know the 2000 Olympics, the first year of triathlon. And... Um, you're making the team and, and tell us a little bit about that Olympic experience and, and, you know, how was that? And, and I mean, we can't even imagine, I guess the, the rest of us, what that must be like. So just kind of, if you can try to capsulize it, <laughs> um, let, let us know how that was. Well, you know, the thing that's really kind of ironic about my whole Olympic journey is I was not one of those youngsters who had these Olympic aspirations. I, I I've always been a realist. And I knew that I wasn't going to be an Olympic swimmer. And that didn't deter me from wanting to accomplish as much as I possibly could and maximize my own personal potential in swimming. And certainly I went to the Olympic trials and that was wonderful, but I had no illusions that I was going to actually make an Olympics in swimming. When I switched to triathlon, I didn't even know that it was an Olympic sport. And even when I turned pro, I didn't really know much about triathlon the Olympics and what it would take to actually qualify for the Olympics. So it, it was kind of a, almost a surprise and became almost an afterthought because when I first started doing um, Olympic distance triathlon and getting on the Olympic track and doing the series of races that were required to qualify for the Olympics, I hated it. I, I, the Olympic distance races for the Olympics are draft legal meaning that people on the bike ride in a bunch. So if you've seen the Tour de France, you know, you see the big Peloton, and that's what, what Olympic-style racing is, um, as opposed to something like the Ironman, where, which is non-drafting, and you have to maintain a certain distance away from the person in front of you. And I just never truly embraced the, the drafting style of triathlon. I didn't love it as much as non-drafting. I didn't like the fact that my fate was dependent on the people I'm competing against. I just found that to be hard to reconcile. Sure. And I ended up dropping out of a few races from different things. And, you know, it was, the people weren't always nice and it was a lot of travel. And I had a hard time kind of juggling the travel needed for that and the fact that I was in graduate school. And there were a lot of obstacles. But things really turned around for me. In 1999, I went to the World Championships and I actually praised place pretty well. And it kind of changed my attitude toward my chances of qualifying for the team. And then in early 2000, I had some real success. I podiumed at a couple of World Cups. I won some big non-drafting races. And by the time the Olympic trials came around, I really felt like I had a shot at making it. Okay. That's awesome. And you did indeed make it. Um... And, you know, I, I can remember, you know, being here in Baltimore and, and all of us cheering you on, and it was just so amazing. And, you know, you had a fourth place finish at the Olympics, which is just crazy. I mean, it just, I, I mean, does it still to this day seem surreal? Or, you know, how do you, how, how do you remember it and look back on it? Well, it's funny because everybody says, oh, fourth place is the worst place to end up. You know, you're just out of the medals and it's, you know, this just terrible fate. 
And I, I never really, I was just so happy that I finished for, you know, I was the first American. I got to run across the line with an American flag. Yeah. There were, you know, hundreds of thousands of spectators. For me, it was, it was an amazing experience. And, you know, even, you know, when, a few, you know, there was always speculation about the person who won being a doper and she even failed a dope test a few years later. And I know a lot of people feel animosity when they hear that kind of thing. But for me, it was never about that. You know, it was an amazing experience. And I don't really look back on it that often. You know, I'm always one to look forward to whatever the next endeavor is going to be. And certainly my goals these days are not nearly as lofty as they used to be when I was younger. But that, that's always kind of my MO is, is what's next? What, what can I accomplish next? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great attitude. Um, so after that, um, I know um, you kind of it continued in triathlon and also started putting a little more focus on marathoning too. Kind of walk me through the order of that and um, and you know lead me down to when you decided to. Well, I guess the decision really wasn't yours, right? With with with, with kind of. Um, you know, dropping out of triathlon and more focusing on running. Um, kind of fill us in on fill us in on the the world championships for the seventy point three and 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 the aftermath and and what led you to more running and all that. Well, I actually in two thousand ran the marathon Olympic trials. Okay. So I had run a really strong marathon at the end of nineteen ninety nine and qualified. So that was kind of my first really big time marathon was in two thousand. And I didn't run another open marathon for a really long. I, I, I actually I did run one in 2001 for a sponsor, but you know that was kind of like my last really focused marathon until after I was done with triathlon. I just couldn't really fit that into the schedule anymore. Triathlon season got longer, and there was really no time to do any marathoning. But in the interim between then and where I'm gonna get to shortly. I was running half marathons and I would start off every year in January, February with a half marathon because it was just, you know, that's always been my favorite running distance. It was a good way to get through the winter, kind of test my fitness early on. And it just didn't take the same levels of commitment as running a marathon. So I was still kind of keeping one small finger in the running world, even though I was really focused on triathlon. In 2008, I won the Half Ironman World Championships. That was always my best distance, always my favorite distance. It really was that perfect combination of my Olympic distance speed and my Ironman endurance. And didn't, you know, I had a lot of um, stomach issues in Ironman and, and I just never could get my nutrition down. Half Ironman is a lot more forgiving for those kinds of problems. So it just really worked out for me well. And so that, that, year I had a series of really good half Ironman races. I won quite a few and I was just on a roll and it culminated in with that awesome race in Clearwater in 2008. In 2009, I went back to defend my title. I was in arguably better shape than I was in in 2008. I was running times on the track that I hadn't seen in, in years and I was really kind of excited to try and defend my title. Uh, it was kind of a crazy year in Clearwater that year. There were a lot of things that kind of happened. But I was at an aid station 45 miles into the 56-mile bike ride. I was reaching for a water bottle. The person who was handing it to me was holding it improperly. So when I tried to grab it from him, he actually pulled back and basically just pulled me off my bike. Oh. 
and I kind of flipped over the front. I broke my collarbone and I broke a ton of ribs. It was kind of a disaster. I tried racing through 2010 very unsuccessfully. I was having some ongoing issues with my ribs that to this day I am still dealing with. In, 2000, in August of 2010, I raced the Lake Stevens 70.3, and during the race, I had an epiphany. It was going to be my last triathlon. I just couldn't, I couldn't ride the bike anymore. The biking was causing me a lot of problems. And I muddled through the race, got to the finish line, and that was my last triathlon. Shortly thereafter, I stopped riding my bike but I realized that most of the time I could run. So I was still dealing with some ongoing injuries with my ribs and with some chronic pain issues that I'm working through still, but I was able to put together enough run training that I qualified for the Olympic trials and the marathon in 2011 and uh, went to the trials in 2012. Okay, okay. How hard was that for you to let go of triathlon and, and how much did you miss it? It was really hard. It's, it's very difficult. I mean, being a professional triathlete is an amazing lifestyle. You're doing something that you love. I traveled all over the world. I met amazing people. I was testing myself on a, on a continuous basis. Winning a race, there's just nothing like it. I mean, there, there were just so many things that I loved. But through 2010, when I was dealing with these injuries and dropping out of races, and I was in so much pain, and it was it, the frustration was really high, it, there, I really, it wasn't even a decision. I just, it, it was, I had to do it. it. It was no longer, I was just no longer able to do it. And I, I missed it for a while. And sometimes I still miss it. Sure. I'll probably always miss it. It, it was, it was wonderful. I, it was, it was great, but you know, things move on. I wasn't going to be a professional triathlete forever. It would have been nice to squeeze out a few more years, but it wasn't in the cards. Right. Right. What did, what did running give you, you know, when you had to let go of triathlon? Well, you know, kind of like what I was telling you about the Olympics, that I don't really look back. I'm always looking forward. Yeah. Switching to running and having that goal of qualifying for the trials and trying to achieve some PRs and other distances, it just gave me something to focus on. I mean, ultimately, I'm a goal-oriented, competitive person, and I don't really particularly care what the goal is. I just want one. And so it, it gave me an outlet for, for that part of me. It gave me um, the ability to meet some new people, um, expand my social group, explore new places on foot rather than on bike. And the nice thing about running is it doesn't require the same time commitment that triathlon does. So it uh, has allowed me to expand my, my business and the other things that I'm doing but still get out there and get outside and, and test myself and, uh, you know, get those much needed endorphins. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and talking a little bit, um, you know, aside from the injuries and the ongoing issues with that, how have things changed for you as you've become a master's runner? I mean, what, what things have you noticed that are different and what do you do differently because of that? I think the biggest difference being a master's runner is just having all those years of experience behind you so that when you encounter an obstacle, it's not the end of the world. You just know that there are other things that you're going to get through it. You've got an arsenal of experience to figure out what the problem is. It just kind of changes that feeling of this be all end all. 
you know, because it just, it's not as important perhaps as, as maybe it used to be. Yeah, 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 that, that's good to describe. Um, it, I mean, anything in terms of on a physical level, um, you know, recovery-wise or any of that kind of stuff, have you noticed any differences with that? I don't particularly notice any differences because, for one, I'm just doing so many so much less than I used to. I just never feel tired. Okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, you know, no matter how many hours I spend running, it's never going to hold a candle to the number of hours I spent doing triathlon. Right. And my legs were always a lot more tired from riding a bike than they were from running. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think part of it too is you know, given the restrictions that have been put on me because of this ongoing. I don't even want to call it an injury. I call it a situation because, I don't know, an injury to me feels like it's more finite and this is infinite. Um, I call it, you know, because of my situation with my ribs, I've always had this kind of upper limit of what I can do. And, and so I've just never been able to push myself quite as hard as I could if I didn't have these restrictions with my breathing and pain and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So now let's talk about then the situation and where you are today and what you're going through because it's a lot and and I you know as always I really respect your good attitude through it all um, you know you're you're not a complainer and you know a lot of people going through what you're going through I you know would be handling this differently so so let's talk a little bit about that so when I had this accident in 2009, I broke my collarbone, which I had fixed surgically immediately afterwards. And I was having some significant pain in my rib cage immediately. I never, you know, I had all sorts of x-rays done and they actually never even picked up rib fractures, even though you could see on my left side that one rib healed really funny. And I just had ongoing pain on my right side that nobody could figure out. Um, I ended up with some pretty significant intercostal neuralgia, which is basically pain in the nerves that are between your ribs. Um, I had a surgery in 2012. Uh, it was basically an exploratory surgery, and they went into my lower rib, and they found that I had an unhealed fracture on the end of my rib. You know, the fracture, they said, was never there. Okay. So they basically cut the end of the rib off because of where it was. There was really nothing, nothing they could do to fix it. And they also found something called an aroma, which is basically a, a growth of nerves, like a, a nerve tumor, if you will. Okay. And so they took that out, and that was causing quite an extensive amount of pain. Um, so they took that out, and I was doing better, but I was also having a lot of difficulties higher up. Um, I knew that I had displaced my diphoid process, which is a small piece of cartilage at the end of your sternum. It's supposed to kind of sit flat like your sacrum, and mine was bent back to the right. So in October of last year, I had another surgery, and he went in there, and he took out my xiphoid process. My xiphoid was actually stuck in my rectus abdominis muscle, almost oh. touching my lung. Oh. And he found another unhealed fracture on my eighth rib, and he put in two titanium plates with some screws to try and stabilize the fracture, because I could feel all this clicking and movement in there. And then the other thing he did was he took this entire nerve bundle, because I was having all this nerve pain, and he created this pocket underneath my abdominal muscle and just put the nerve bundle underneath that. Wow. So that was a pretty nifty little surgery. Yeah. And so things were, were progressing pretty well until about February, and I was starting to struggle to breathe again. I couldn't take a deep breath. And what had happened was, as the fracture healed and I got more mobility in my ribs, um, the plates got really stuck in there and I couldn't expand my rib cage anymore. And I felt like I was kind of breathing with a noose around my side. 
So I had another surgery in May and they took out those titanium plates and, and uh, that improved my ability to expand my rib, rib cage, but I was still experiencing a lot of nerve pain. And uh, that's what I'm kind of working through up to, until now is trying to figure out how to get rid of this nerve pain. I've had multiple uh, injections of cortisone and other kind of crazy stuff and I just can't seem to get rid of this nerve pain. So your limitations right now physically, what, what can you do? Well, things have really deteriorated. Um, up until this point, I've always been able to run through it. I've had to take off big chunks of time from swimming. Um, but now at this point, um, I'm not able to swim. I'm running on uh, an anti, have you seen those like Alter-G treadmills, yeah. the anti-gravity? Yeah. So I'm running on the Alter-G because I can't run at full body weight, the jarring. I, what's happening now is I've got my 12th rib is really hypermobile and it's impinging a nerve. Okay. So the jarring is really painful. So I'm able to run the Alter-G at decreased body weight. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's, that's tough. That's tough. Um, but like I said, I mean, I, you know, I really think it's amazing the grace with which you're handling all of this. And, and like I said, you're not complaining. And and you know, you alluded to the fact that you're always looking forward, and it sounds to me from you know, one of your last posts that that's, that's kind of where you are now. Is that you're, you know, you're still searching. You're not giving up. You're not throwing in the towel. Um, would you say that that's about right? Oh, that's definitely true. I mean, you know, it's it, it's really. I actually met with the surgeon yesterday, and it was a very discouraging visit. He he wasn't very kind and didn't have anything helpful. So I'm going to have to try and find yet another surgeon who might be able to help me with this hypermobile rib. There's really not much you can do to stabilize a rib that's kind of like a loose tooth. And so I might have to have that rib, maybe the end of it cut off so it doesn't impinge the nerve anymore. Okay. But, you know, it was interesting. I was talking to my dad yesterday about this whole thing and, and just that athlete mindset. And he was saying to me, you know, the surgeon just doesn't understand that you're an athlete and you want to get back to your activity. And I said to him, you know, I don't actually think that's what the athlete mindset is about because, you know, right now it's not even a matter of getting back to activity. My daily living is affected. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I'm uncomfortable sitting. You know, so it's, it's more than getting back to, to being able to run or to swim or do whatever. You know, I just want to feel good in general. And I think what the athlete mindset gives you is, is that ability to not give up when a doctor basically slams the door in your face. And it feels kind of helpless and that there's nobody out there that can help, you know, guide you through it. The athlete mindset is the one that is, I'm not going to give up. There is an answer and I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great way of describing it. Um, well, I certainly, certainly wish you all the best. And, and, you know, I certainly feel that if there's someone who can figure out this puzzle and, and, you know, someone who's going to keep knocking on doors, it's you. Um, and, and that you're going to get back to what you love. You know, I, I, I really, I'm, I'm pulling for you with that. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, just, I, I've had so much support from people and, and that really kind of does help in those moments when it feels really bleak and, you know, ultimately running is just such a, a natural thing to do. You know, even though people might feel it's unnatural, it's, it's, it's really is a natural activity that we all do as kids growing up and, it gets you outside and it's, it's, it can be conversational with a friend and, you know, it really brings a lot. And I just uh, look forward to the day that I can, at any time that I decide I want to do it, I can just put on my shoes and go for a run. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And let's just touch real quickly too. I mean, you, you 
in the meantime, I mean, you've got the book project going and you also have um, a coaching business going. And um, so that's race ready coaching. And, um, you know, so you're there for both triathlon and running coaching or what, what is the situation with that? Uh, well, at Race Ready Coaching, you can find us at racereadycoaching.com. Uh, we coach runners, triathletes, and cyclists, and we've been catering to athletes of all levels, beginners, you know, doing their first 5K, all the way up to Ironman qualifiers. So we really want to, you know, our goal is to educate athletes so that they make good decisions with their training, that they understand what they're doing with their nutrition. That they, that, that they understand there's a method to the madness, that we're not just giving workouts that have no meaning. Yeah. You know, we try and do things with a purpose. And we want athletes to understand that purpose and really apply that to everything they're doing athletically. That's great. That's great. I think there's a definite need for that kind of coaching out there. Um, <laughs> so so that, that's, that's really great to hear. And, and hopefully um, that's, that's going to continue to be successful for you. Enjoyed talking with Joanna today as much as I did. Uh, as you can tell, she's had an amazing career, and we all have a lot to learn from her. I wanted to give a little bit of follow-up uh, in Joanna's case because uh, since taping our initial podcast, she has had a fourth surgery, and I'm happy to report that so far she's really uh, enjoying some relief from it. Um, she had some parts of her, her 11th and 12th ribs removed, and um, was told to start moving about. Um, in true Joanna style, she went ahead and walked 50 miles her first week post-op. <laughs> so uh, anyhow, she's happy to say that um, right now she is feeling relatively pain-free and she's been cleared to swim. So hopefully we're gonna see Joanna out there on the roads again sometime soon. And uh, I know that whatever kind of a return she has, it's going to be successful. So. Thanks again to Joanna for the podcast and for the follow-up report.